Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Amender here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. <laughs> The following question refers to section 9.1 of the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA guidelines for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Tech School of Medicine, USC Medical Student, and Cardionerds intern Hirsch Elhan, answered first by Duke University Cardiology Fellow and Cardionerds Fit Ambassador, Dr. Amon Kunzal, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Anu Lala. Dr. Lala is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist. Associate Professor of Medicine and Population Health Science and Policy, Director of Heart Failure Research and Program Director for the Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Fellowship Training Program at Mount Sinai. Dr. Lala is Deputy Editor for the Journal of Cardiac Failure. Dr. Lala has been a champion and role model for CardioNerds. She has been a PI mentor for the CardioNerds Clinical Trials Network and continues to serve in the program's leadership. She is also faculty mentor for this very 2022 Heart Failure Decipher the Guidelines series. Dr. Lala, it is such an honor to have you with us. Thank you so, so much, Cardio Nerds Bree, for having me. As always, I am so excited to be here and to be a part of this series on the new Heart Failure Guidelines, co-published by the AHA, ACC, and Heart Failure Society of America, also co-published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure. I'm really just so proud of and in awe of all that this organization has accomplished. You know, it just brings me so much joy to see how many people have had an opportunity to let their light shine through this platform. And I really look forward to all that comes with this particular endeavor and in the future. So thank you again for allowing me to be a part. Thank you so much, Dr. Lala. Okay, Hirsch, what question do you have for us? Yeah, thanks, Bree. So... The patient I'm going to talk about today is Mrs. Hart. She's a 63-year-old woman with a history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with an LVEF of 20 to 25%. She's presenting with five days of worsening dyspnea and orthopnea. She takes carvedilol 12.5 milligrams BID, secubitril valsartan 24 and 46 milligrams BID, and pagliflozin 10 milligrams daily, and gerosamide 40 milligrams daily. She reports that she has been able to take all of her medications. What's the initial management for Mrs. H? And so the answer choices for this are A, assess her degree of congestion and hypoperfusion. B, search for precipitating factors. C, evaluate her overall trajectory. D, all of the above. Or E, none of the above. And I'm in, you know, 
I think this is a super interesting question, but I'd love your help in figuring out what the answer is. Yeah, thanks, Hirsch. It's a great question and one that we often see in the hospital. The correct answer here is D, all of the above. Let's walk through each answer choice and see why it's correct. Choice A is correct because in patients hospitalized with heart failure, the severity of congestion and adequacy of perfusion should be assessed to guide triage and initial therapy. That has a class one recommendation. Congestion can be assessed by using the clinical exam to gauge right and left-sided filling pressures like elevated JBP, S3, edema, which are usually proportional in decompensation of chronic heart failure with low EF. However, up to one in four patients have a mismatch between right and left-sided filling pressures. Hyperperfusion can be suspected from narrow pulse pressure and cool extremities, intolerance to neurohormonal antagonists, worsening renal function, altered mental status, and even elevated serum lactate. So that's choice A. Let's go with choice B. Why is that correct? Well, searching for precipitating factors is also correct because in patients hospitalized with heart failure, the common precipitating factors and the overall patient trajectory should be assessed to guide appropriate therapy. Again, a class one indication. Common precipitating factors include ischemic and non-ischemic causes, such as acute coronary syndromes, atrial fibrillation and other arrhythmias, uncontrolled hypertension, other cardiac disease, acute infections, anemia, thyroid dysfunction, non-adherence to medications, or even new medications. When initial clinical assessment does not suggest congestion or hypoperfusion, symptoms of heart failure may be a result of transient ischemia, arrhythmias, or non-cardiac disease, such as chronic pulmonary disease or pneumonia, and a more focused assessment may be warranted. Okay, and lastly, choice C, evaluation of a patient's trajectory is correct as hospitalization for heart failure is a sentinel event that signals worse prognosis and provides key opportunities to redirect the disease trajectory, including establishment of optimal volume status before and after discharge. During the heart failure hospitalization, the approach to management should include and address precipitating factors, comorbidities, and previous limitations to ongoing disease management related to social determinants of health. The disease trajectory for patients hospitalized with reduced EF is markedly improved by optimization of recommended medical therapies, which should be initiated or increased toward target doses once the efficacy of diuresis has been shown. All right, that's a lot. Really, the main takeaway here is when a patient is admitted for acute decompensated heart failure, initial management involves assessing the patient's degree of congestion and hypoperfusion, identifying and addressing precipitating factors, and evaluating overall patient trajectory to guide appropriate triage and therapy. Dr. Lala, what else are we missing? Help us out over here. Yeah, that was so beautifully explained. I feel like I have nothing left to say. I wish you were uh, rounding with me. I am actually on service right now. And so this is so, so relevant to what I've been doing day in and day out for the past several days. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, when I see someone with the labeled diagnosis of acute decompensated heart failure, there's a couple of things that come to mind right off the bat. And they have traditionally been separated out from one another, but I don't think that they need to be. So one, I'd just like to point out that one can have acute decompensated heart failure that's not in the hospital. And so oftentimes these are used synonymously with, okay, hospitalization for heart failure or hospitalized for heart failure is the same thing as acute decompensated heart failure. But you can see acute decompensated heart failure in your clinic. Someone can be decompensated. And what the acuity implies is not that this is new because we know that congestion can occur and does occur, in fact, over days to weeks up until 
the patient reaches this sort of critical threshold where they then manifest with symptoms, right? And so we know that intracardiac filling pressures go up to a certain point where they ultimately result in the patient presenting most commonly with dyspnea. But then, of course, we know all the other signs and symptoms of heart failure that you've already kind of mentioned, like edema, elevated jugular venous pressure, rails, crackles, etc. But my, my first thought is, where am I seeing this patient? What has been their background therapy? Is this a de novo diagnosis or is this something that they've had previously? And I don't think that the treatment implications are different. It just helps me understand the, the context within which the patient is presenting. So I'd say that's number one is where am I seeing this patient? Is there a history of pre-existing heart failure like you've already shared or is this a new diagnosis? And then I exactly like you said, I look to see where they fit. You know, I trained with Lynn Warner Stevenson, so I, call, I still call them the Stevenson profiles. But, you know, is are they well perfused? So are they first and foremost, the first thing I do is put my hand on their proximal extremities. Are they warm? I, really, I'm a simple person. So sometimes when people talk about perfusion and hypoperfusion and congestion and decongestion, I get confused because there are parameters that help us understand what those those words and those terms mean, but they're by no means exact, right? And so I go by the physical exam to a large extent and, of course, the history. And so I put my, my hands on their extremities. I feel whether they're warm or not, first and foremost, and I feel proximally because if the patient's anything like me, I always have cold hands and cold feet. And so, first of all, if I say, yes, okay, they are warm, then I think about congestion. So are they congested at rest? And w what is it that's making me think that? And I look at all the, the signs and symptoms as we've talked about. We look at if we have the luxury of getting some imaging and looking at x-rays and even potentially an echo, that's great. But you can tell so, so much from the physical exam. You know, I most commonly look at jugular venous pressure. I'm a, a big stickler for that, but I will also do a thorough exam. Listening for an S3 is also particularly helpful for me. Um, I think symptoms like edema and rails and crackles are actually not necessarily always as helpful, but they can be adjunctive for sure. And then when I think about that, if I say, okay, yes, they are congested, then I'll look to see, and I've categorized them in where 80% of our patients actually present in that warm and wet category. Then I'll look at things, if I have the luxury of having their laboratory values, I'll look at their creatinine and kind of assess whether we're thinking about this cardiorenal syndrome, is there increased renal venous pressure? And importantly, and you hit on this so nicely already, is if they are indeed warm and wet, what quote unquote side is involved. And so myself and, and Dan Burkhoff is really to be awarded for this thought process and Naveen Kapoor and others. But I, in my mind, again, just the way I have that, that Y axis of perfusion and that X axis of congestion, as soon as I've said, yes, I think this patient is congested. And remember, it's okay to be wrong, but at least Put your, put your dime on something, right? So move forward and say, okay, I think this patient is congested based on X, Y, and Z. And then if you do think that, then think to yourself, and for me, I do a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure or left-sided pressures, left-sided filling pressures, that is on the Y-axis, and right-sided filling pressures on the X-axis. And I think to myself, do I think that this is all 
left-sided congestion, meaning I think that this patient has a history, let's say, of severely reduced ejection fraction, but has no jugular venous distension. And I can look at other things based on prior history and other things like that. So if I think it's isolated LV filling pressure elevation, we have to remember that pressure doesn't always equal volume, right? So is it left-sided congestion and not right-sided congestion? Do I think that this is only right-sided congestion? So there's dominant right-sided elevation of filling pressures, but perhaps not the left. And that can sometimes be a little bit difficult. You have to ask the patient how they're feeling, what their predominant symptoms are. Then I think, okay, this is more right-sided. And then most commonly, we see elevation of both, right? Where there's just pure volume overload. But we do know, as you really nicely pointed out, that sometimes you don't have that perfect match. And that's what I was talking about previously, where your left side could be really high and your right side's low. So I've got a number of patients in hospital actually right now with advanced cardiomyopathy who have an RE of four and a wedge of 25. And they're already sort of maxed out on what they can tolerate in terms of medical therapy. And these are patients that ultimately, depending, of course, on the patient who end up needing advanced therapies and need afterload reduction and potentially unloading. Whereas the right-sided predominant heart failure, you're really thinking about diuresis and optimization of that right side. So I know that's a ton, so I'll stop there because I could go on and on about this because I really, really love this topic. So, so Dr. Lala, we've, we've touched on congestion so far, but what I'd really love to know also is what are your key tips or best practices for evaluating hypoperfusion as well? Yeah, thanks so much, Amon. I think that's, that's the other part of this, right? So we talked about what it's like if someone is warm. So what, what if someone is cold? And what if they're not frankly cold? And some of the, the, the terminology that I'm known for and made fun of for is sometimes I'll say, oh, the patient is lukewarm, <laughs> which means I'm not able to kind of put my hand on it exactly as to where they are. But I think in, my, in the back of my mind, I think of acute decompensated heart failure along the spectrum of cardiogenic shock, which is so nicely put forward by Sky, right? There's their expert consensus updates to Sky shock stages. And if you look at that, you see hemodynamically stable shock, which is like stage A. And then you think of stage B as hemodynamically unstable. And I think the minute they become unstable, it becomes a little bit easier to recognize. But it's between that A and B that some of these low perfusion, acute decompensated heart failure patients present. And so what are the things that you look for? Well, the same things that you look for in cardiogenic shock, but earlier in that trajectory, right? So altered mental status as a result of hypoperfusion. You look at, again, we talked about cold extremities. We look at urine output. So not just creatinine, because you can be in that warm and wet category and be congested and have cardiorenal syndrome. So it's not just your creatinine that goes up that makes you think about low perfusion, but really a lack of urine output in addition to taking the creatinine into account. And then you look at lactate right, as, as another objective marker. And you kind of, if you're unsure and you've got a venous lactate that you don't necessarily believe that's been sitting around, do another one. Assess for a trend. If you're not sure what the patient's baseline mental status is like, ask a family member if you can. Try and do some digging in that chart to see whether this seems consistent with what they are like at their baseline. And the minute you think that someone truly is hypoperfused, you know, obviously you're thinking about a different 
pathway in terms of medications and treatment strategies. I would say that if anything doesn't feel like it's consistent, meaning let's say you've got someone who has warm extremities but doesn't have good urine output, does seem altered and seems congested, and you're not quite sure where they fit in those different two-by-two algorithms, those are the types of people that I would say, hey, get a right heart cath in. If you've got someone who you're diuresing and you're convinced that they're congested and they're responding, yet they remain congested and you start to see worsening renal function and their signs and symptoms of deterioration in perfusion, that's someone you should get a right heart cath in. I think if you see someone who's progressing into cardiogenic shock, that's someone you should get a right heart cath in. If there's someone with concomitant pulmonary hypertension that you think is playing a major role here, where there may, may be a pre-capillary and post-capillary component, and, and you feel like you need more information to guide your management, that's someone you get a right heart cath in. And I know the, the guidelines did not give a particularly high level of evidence in terms of recommending PA catheter-guided treatment, but I think it very much depends on the type of patient you're seeing. I, being a heart failure cardiologist, feel fairly confident in my physical exam skills to be able to at least guess at an initial trajectory in terms of where I'm going to be going with my treatment, but I am often wrong. I mean, what I love so much about our field is that it humbles you every single day. And if I feel like I've started on a pathway and they're not responding in the way that I would have expected them to, I will get a right heart cath or a PA cath. And again, if they're showing signs of worsening perfusion or congestion that does not seem to be responding to decongestive therapies, again, I will get a right heart cath in that scenario to help me in terms of deciding what next treatments to consider. That was great. Thanks so much. I think... um one thing that I'm hearing also is that with all these sky stages, you know, with, with stage E, like I, I know that that's almost too late for some of these patients. And stage A, like you were mentioning, is not quite unstable just yet. And what I'm hearing is there's actually a huge opportunity somewhere between like people that we see as outpatients that could really benefit from just like a very keen eye and the physical exam findings that you mentioned and just having a high degree of suspicion because these are the people that probably could, could benefit the most from the physical exam and like the, the attention to detail that you mentioned. Thank you so much for, for highlighting that point. I think that comes again to the fact that you can see this type of patient in your clinic. So I think having the bias in our minds that, oh, these are only patients I see in the emergency room or in the CCU or on the floors in the middle of the night, it's, it's not the case. We can see these patients, especially those with advanced myopathies um, in the outpatient setting, you can see that it doesn't matter. Location doesn't matter is my point. And so we have to have a keen eye and a high index of suspicion for this kind of profile uh, when we see our patients in, in general. And you know what's amazing is that when you think about assessing every single patient you see like this, you become good at navigating this framework. And when you become good at this at, at really kind of understanding where patients fit in this framework, it really helps clarify what kind of treatment you're going to pursue for them next and what you're going to do if they don't work. You know, there's this beautiful document by Lynn Stevenson and Paul Heidenreich where they basically say, hey, do a trajectory check, right? So if you say, I think this person is warm and wet, 
I'm going to diurese them. Fabulous. Go for it. And if they're not responding at all, then you're in that trajectory check. You say, hey, okay, this is my time for a trajectory check. We're at a pause here. They're not clinically worsening, but we certainly haven't made any headway. What can I do differently? Can I augment their decongestive strategy, their decongestive therapy strategy? Do I need to add something else on why or why not? And oftentimes we'll hear, oh, just add on inotropes. We need inotrope-assisted diuresis. And I think some of you know that that's a little bit of a pet peeve for me because it doesn't necessarily mean that we understand what's going on. And, and we have to recognize that when we start inotropes, there should be some end goal in mind based on the data that we have so far. I think that's great. I think the, tra- the idea of a trajectory check is such a great mindset. And then just going back to what you said earlier, I think, and it's okay to be wrong and just brings up the idea of it's okay to fail, just fail fast and have an idea of where to go if you do. Aman and Dr. Lala, thank you. Thank you both so much for that amazing discussion. I think it's going to help all of us take better care of our patients. 